during our, during our time here together, we haven't been only sharpening our meditative skills, but through our moment-to-moment mindful attention of the mind, of the body, of the environment, we've also been spontaneously developing the noble qualities of mind and heart that give us a sense of inviolable uh, sense of well-being in the world. One of our um, colleagues and uh, teachers on the path, Jack Engler, said that in order to really realize deeply this understanding of anatta or uh, this not-self characteristic, we have to have a healthy sense of ourselves as human beings. And that's why the, the Buddha knew from uh, way back in previous lives of his that it was important to develop all the paramis, those noble qualities of our mind and heart. Because it's through the opening of all those qualities of our mind and heart, called the paramis, I'll go over them in a minute, that we can really open to life as it truly is. We need that kind of strength to open to uh, dukkha, the unsatisfactoriness of life, to see at a very deep level impermanence, at a moment-to-moment level, uh, where you, you can just have a sense of, you could put your, poke your finger through a moment of understanding this kind of vision of life and feel that it can just go right through. And we, we really feel the emptiness of all of life through that and the experience of anatta, or not-selfness. These noble qualities we have been developing here uh, as we've been doing our practice, these paramis. One of the definitions of paramis, one of the translations, comes from the word paramount, paramount. They are perfections of the highest quality. Another description of the word parami is carrying one to the further shore. Carrying one to the further shore, meaning that peace that isn't conditioned upon anything, that very deep peace and happiness that I know all of us in our own ways, whether we've known it or not, we have a longing for that, a spiritual urgency for that. So I'm not going to talk about all the paramis tonight, just one of them, but I want to uh, name them all. The first parami that is in this list that the Buddha put down is generosity, or dana. Uh, Steve spoke about it this afternoon. The second one is morality, or living a life of non-harming through our skillful use of words and actions. The third parami is renunciation, uh, when we practice uh, the precepts every morning, we remind ourselves that we want to let go of any way in which we might harm another. So this is renunciation and morality, the second and third one go together in a way. Those who have taken the extra three precepts 
are also practicing and doing without. And this is a, a greater form of renunciation, one that is also important to practice. Uh, it, it's one of the main reasons why I, I love to practice as a nun, because it gives that extra way of practicing renunciation, just doing without. The fourth one is wisdom, panya. I'll speak about that in my talk also tonight. And the fifth one is energy, or right effort. The sixth one is patience, which I've spoken about. The seventh is truthfulness. The eighth is resolution, which I'm going to give a full talk about this evening. And then there's loving kindness, which we've been practicing every day and equanimity. I know that a lot of us, and I speak for myself, we don't feel fully um, skilled in these paramis, that we have still a ways to go. Some of us feel that way. I love the way Manindra would put it. He would say, my path is not yet finished. He knew that he had more to let go of, more skills to become um, more skillful with, at. So we can see them as the potentials of a human heart, of a human mind. So this evening, the parami that I'd like to open and speak more about is the parami of resolution or resolve. The how, why, why and uh, what of it all. After a retreat like this, any time we go to a retreat, no matter how long we've been on the path, I think this is one thing that one of us, each of us wonder. How can we go home and really continue our practice at home? What kinds of resolutions or resolves can we make for ourselves that aren't too high so we get constantly discouraged every day that we're not sitting as much as we want, or we can't practice as skillfully in speech as we want to, and all the other ways that we might make a resolve. Or we don't want to set the bar too low either, not too high, not too low, just finding the balance where we know we might just kind of reach up a little bit more, like um, up the ante a little bit, and um, see what, what we can do to open our hearts more, to train our minds more. So what is skillful resolve? How does it feel when it's activated? So I like to tell stories so you can relate to your own life and remember ways in your own life where you might feel, experience this parami yourself. And why is it necessary? What perfects it and what contaminates it? So kind of in a, in a way that uh, paints a picture, I'd like to talk about all these things and interweave them. When you look at all the paramis, you can see that this one is really the starting point for all of the others. Sometimes, you know, I talked about patience. Patience really feeds all the other ones, helps all the other ones grow to a great degree. But there's a point in our lives when we see how impatient we are, or how our hearts aren't as open as we'd like them to be. 
and we make the resolve to open our hearts more, to be more patient, to be noticing more when impatient comes up so we can practice patience, even with our own impatience, for example. So it's a starting point, or uh, the, the bedrock, you might say, of all the others. Each one adds strength to the others, of course, and the more each one is developed, the greater the sense of well-being that we have. They, they nurture one another. It's a gift that we give to ourselves when we can recognize where we need to make a resolve in any one of these paramis or in any endeavor we have in life and put our energy there and keep that, uh, keep that in mind, keep the light on it from day to day. It's not only a gift to ourselves, but of course that's our contribution to the world. When we have a sense of that well-being uh, that come from really knowing how to activate those paramis in our own hearts, in our own lives, then when we are that way, then you really don't have to say very much. Just your beingness in the world is a model to others. It helps others to have some kind of maybe a little higher bar that they have for themselves, that they can have for themselves. One of the most important things we learn in Dharma practice is that the happiness we're constantly looking for is not gratification on the hedonic treadmill. It's not about getting and getting and getting and even reading more Dhamma books and hearing more Dhamma lectures and um, uh, Upandita calls it uh, chronic yogi, you know, <laughs> always going to retreats, but really, can we see it come out in our own lives? Can we see the fruit of it come out in our own lives? What we're really looking for is a sense of well-being within ourselves. And um, when we have that, it's, a, it's one of the greatest feelings one of the most beautiful feelings we can have when it's there. So most, if not all of you, have been on the spiritual path for a long time. I know some of you are fairly new to this spiritual path, but many of you have been opening your hearts in many different ways. We've had good mothers and fathers, even though we have another opinion of them once in a while. But basically, they've been good mothers and fathers. And from the time we were born, you could say we've been on a good spiritual path just from their um, influence on our lives. And you know that to open your heart and your mind, to calm the heart and the mind, to develop the wisdom of the heart-mind, which, by the way, in, um, in the Dhamma, heart and mind are the same thing. They're not, they're not separate. It takes training. It takes resolve to do the training. All of you have a great deal of resolve just to be here. Just the resolve to hear the bell and come into the hall. And as somebody said in the back, just to show up was the, it was a big thing, you know, just to show up because then you're here for the Dharma you're here to open your hearts. There's a certain amount of cultivation that we need to know has to happen 
a certain amount of knowing where you want to direct the energy of your life or the energy of your time here in retreat. You understand what you need to do in order to participate being here. So you put your energy and determination in that direction. That takes resolve. Every time when we did the metta practice, just to resolve to incline your mind to loving kindness, even though maybe it wouldn't go there, even though there were obstacles in the way, just that direction that you put, that seed that you planted every moment to incline the mind to loving kindness, that bears fruit. We don't know when, but it does bear fruit. Manindra would say to me when I would get a little bit um, reluctant to do the practice or a little bit lazy to do the practice, he would say something like, you can't just sit under a tree and wait for the mangoes to fall. You, you really have to cultivate, do your, do your part in cultivating that tree, water it, um, make sure that you know, it gets proper nourishment, sunshine, all of that. So we have to have resolve to do that. Here in the Dhamma, the Buddha summed up the resolves uh, in four general areas. He said there are four, these four resolves, the resolve for wisdom, the resolve for truth, the resolve for generosity, and the resolve for peace. One should not neglect wisdom. One should preserve truth. One should cultivate generosity. And one should train in peace. And so that last line, train in peace, it does take training. And that training takes resolve. One of these may stand out more to you than the other. Wisdom, truth, <laughs> generosity, peace. I know for me that, um, and this is how most people come to the Dharma, because there's a lot of suffering in our lives, and we realize it. And because of that suffering, if anybody asks me, how did you get to the Dharma? One word re respond, suffering. Just seeing how much suffering there is outwardly and inwardly, I wanted to understand how to get to a greater peace in my heart. Not that I wanted to make the whole world peaceful, uh, because it's, it, that's such a big thing, but just even just to make my own heart peaceful, that, that, would be, uh, that would take great determination. But from the time I can remember, that was what I wanted to do. So that was my resolve, even though I couldn't articulate it when I was very young. So the training here has um, taken the resolve to support one another by actively participating in the retreat, respecting one another's silence, and respecting the container of the retreat. And many of you have been with us on retreat for um, many times before. Some of you have been for the past 20, 15, 20 years, and you know that the container of the retreat We've seen through the years how important it is uh, for everyone uh, to have a, a safe place to practice in where you know we can depend on silence as much as possible. We can depend on everybody participating 
we can depend on uh, everyone just respecting the guidelines of this retreat and, and knowing them so that they can be respected. We're honoring noble silence. Um, we're practicing uh, renunciation here. We're practicing the gentle, persevering effort that it takes moment to moment to be open to whatever is going on, the difficulties inwardly and outwardly. We're practicing metta and compassion all the time. So within all that, there's resolve for wisdom. There is resolve to experience the truth directly or indirectly. There's resolve for generosity, to let go of our self-centered ideas, to give of oneself, to experience peace at ever-deepening levels. And as we've gone along, we learn what, what is balanced, skillful resolve. We learn what it is when we're, when we're too tight and we're, we're too rigid with ourselves in practice. Somebody just today was saying that this is a retreat where they really learned how tight they were. They didn't, they didn't realize how much they, this person was striving and needed to really relax a little bit more in practice. And that was a great, uh, actually a, a great opening for that person to learn. It just took a little bit of relaxation in the mind in order to see more clearly. And someone else, and, and there were a few of you that learned that, um, you know, when we said, just walk and sit as you like, except attend to the three uh, sessions we have, teaching sessions we have in the hall, if you possibly can, unless there's an emergency. And to use the time, the other times, to find your own way. And sometimes we find that, you know, we're too loose with ourselves, and we, we have to just kind of give ourselves a little more structure. But this is the way we learn. And I've, I've learned plenty of times how to tighten up my practice a little more, how to loosen up. And sometimes it's in one walking session. So we learn how to be steadfast, yet balanced in our practice, skillful, so that we feel that determination within, but it's not too tight so that we feel that deep sense of stability by not being too loose, so that we're really decisive about what we're going to do in our practice, single-minded, devoted, dedicated, deliberate. These are all actually words that come from the dictionary, but when I read them, I see, okay, I can feel that, but all in a balanced way, and sometimes not so balanced, so I have to be really clear about where it's not balanced. We have to be concentrated in moment-to-moment -moment experience, unwavering. And clarity of purpose. So that kind of clarity of purpose helps with uh, knowing what our aspiration is. Sometimes we and in the beginning, I came to practice because, you know, I just could see people that it benefited, and I thought, I want that too. What's going on? You know, and I would get drawn to going to retreats or, or groups, and I would be drawn to it because other people were there that would inspire me. 
But bit by bit, I came to be able to clarify what my own aspiration is in, in my practice and to keep a conscious, gentle connection with that all the time. And of course, the bar keeps raising for me. Um, and I find that it's easier as I go along because I'm used to raising the bar for myself. So I just, it wasn't enough for me to just blow in the wind and, uh, you know, I was raising three children on my own for a long time. And it came to me over and over again, more clear, especially during that time, that I just don't want my life to be about survival, just sort of staying afloat. I'd like it to be something greater than that, maybe something that I could give to the world and not just take from the world what I needed to keep surviving. So this, t this really took having a gentle connection and clarity with uh, what my long-range aspiration is. I have a yogi friend who um, celebrated over 30 years of being sober and with the great support of the 12-step program. When she was uh, celebrating her 20th anniversary of this, she was in a one-month retreat with us on Maui. And she came to that retreat to celebrate her 20 years of being uh, sober. And I commented to her that that must have taken a great resolution, a lot of kind of oomph in her energy. She must have had to be very strong about that. And she said right away, oh, no, no, I, I didn't feel strong at all. But I had to do it with a commitment every single day. She had to rem remember her commitment every time she woke up and every in the day and every time she was presented with an opportunity to stray from her path that she had to have a commitment and a willingness to refrain from doing what was not leading to her highest aspiration for her. So that, uh, that helped me along the way, too, to see that, yes, I, I have that understanding, but I really need to put that in practice more, to see it not as just even in the morning aspiration, like, <coughs> this is what I'm doing for my day to day, but to keep remembering what that is through my speech, through my behavior, through what I choose for my life. And you know, you know what that means for you. So a sense of resolve gives us a deep, genuine feeling of strength and stability so that even when we, we go off the path, we have the strength to know we've done it. We can come back. We can start again, over and over again. It's a wonderful feeling to be aligned with our aspiration. And you all have had many aspirations and goals in your life. So you know when you keep that in, in the light uh, of your heart, mind, it, it shines upon your whole life. That light shines in the footsteps you're, you're going to take next. It's the wind behind your back that's helping you move forward. So what is your aspiration? It, it might be good, you know, now that you've had some quietness, it might be good to really 
reflect on that in your life. Not just the current aspirations, but whenever you can think of what's a higher bar for yourself. Take a look at it and see, it, can you have some resolution to go in that direction, some resolve. I remember when I first started practicing, I think I told you this story already, um, I used to have the, these kinds of aspirations, like I'm going to have perfect mindfulness in my walking practice from here to the end of the path. And it, I could never do that. I had to just keep remembering all the time. You know, okay, now be mindful again. It, the mind has gone away and didn't know where it went to. Now begin again, now begin again. And so then I started to take little steps along the way. And I'm so grateful for the precepts, too, because every time I've strayed and, you know, not stayed on, on, on the precepts in, in the way, in the high bar that I'd like to keep for myself, I just take them again. And I don't feel like I'm going to be punished or anything. It's not like a commandment. I undertake the training, too. That's how we say it in English. I undertake the training, too. It's a training that we begin again, over and over. I remember getting through a particularly dukkha-filled retreat, um, and I wanted to quit. I was having so much difficulty. There was so much being seen in that retreat that hadn't be been seen before. Kind of um, other layers of, of suffering were being uh, were being shown, were, were being unfolded and, and experienced very directly by the mind, by the body. And uh, it was my first month-long retreat, but it, the, the, the experience of dukkha came to me very, very quickly. They say that some people experience a lot of dukkha with a lot of pain uh, and a long time, and, um, and there's several other uh, experiences that you have, a little dukkha for a long time, no dukkha for a little time, or, you know, all of those ways. But I am sure I'm the person who experienced a lot of dukkha for a long time. And so I went to my teacher once, and this was that first retreat that I took in that time in Australia, that first time, when I couldn't do anymore. And there are several places along the, the process and the progress of insight where you want to roll up your mat and you just want to go home because you can't take it anymore. And so this wasn't actually the first time, but it was uh, one of the more difficult times. And so I went to the teacher and I was really crying and I just dropped down on the floor. And I'm I'm pretty reserved person. I'm not a person that has a, throws my emotions around, but I dropped on the ground and I said, I can't do it anymore. I just have to go home, you know, and I, I just had my head on the ground like this and just kind of speaking up with my head like that, turning from one and all my tears, you know, and I don't think that was his, uh, one of his first times to teach in the West and I don't think he was used to a Westerner. Um, showing their emotions that way very much. So um, his interpreter um, 
Unyanaponika from Nepal. He's, he was the one that spoke English. And so he, they spoke with one another, and then Unyanaponika got up and he started walking back and forth. And he said, oh, there's so much suffering in the world. There's so much suffering in the world. And so then Upandita said something else. And I, I'm thinking in retrospect, they didn't know what to say to me. <laughs> so um, then Unyanaponika said, Sayadawji says that when it's really difficult for you, and I was telling him it's a lot in my walking practice, when it's really difficult for you, you should be very mindful. You should bend down, then pull up your socks. <laughs> Get up mindfully, and then you should begin again. And I, you know, I just thought that was a magic wand or a magic spell, and I, so I said, Okay. <laughs> uh, okay. And I just, you know, it wasn't any highfalutin thing. It was just really a way of saying, begin again. Just begin again. Just take a break. But the break was, you know, don't go take a nap. Just bend down mindfully, pull up your socks, and begin again. Just that short little break. And uh, I'll, I'll just, um, I still do that when I'm practicing. So don't watch me if you're in retreat with me, because you might see me bending down and pulling up my socks. <laughs> so I, I love uh, Steve's um, comment about how we, we need to remember that the, what we're going after in this practice is not just some kind of happiness that we're going we're gonna to pick off a tree, or it's not gained by just waiting for the fruit to fall in our hands. It really takes a lot of balanced, skillful energy and resolve to do this practice. It's, it's not for, as somebody said, it's not for people who are sissies. Um, it's, a worthy, it's a worthy cause for all of our energy to go into. As Steve says, comfort is not a goal worthy of your efforts. So staying with our practice, facing it with courage, it takes a lot to do this practice. You can't just kind of give in to the pains and to the discomfort all the time. You, um, I remember one time going to practice some, um, and I, I would usually get a little bit of the flu, you know, like a little purification thing, fever and all that at the beginning. And um, I went to Joseph one time, my, our senior colleague, and this was another time when I was doing a long-term metta practice. And he, he's, um, we're friends, he's like a brother to me, but when I go to him for advice, uh, he's my teacher. And he really, he just said straight on to me. He just admonished me. And he said, Kamala, this is how it's going to be when you're dying. You need to face this. You need to be with it and still do your practice. So I said, okay, that's what I'll do. So whenever I go through this, I remember that. Because I, I go through it over and over again, but you get more and more used to it. I remember going through that difficult time and ending uh, a retreat with Seda Upandita. And at the end of the retreat, I, 
I said, you encouraged me to go through this, to stay with the practice, because you said that I would feel the peace of the Dhamma, experience the peace of the Dhamma, if I stayed with it. And I believe you, and, and I, I feel that this is true. And I said, will I ever experience this again? And he said, no, you'll never experience this again. Well, the next time I went to retreat with him, I, it was even, the dukkha was even greater. Now, it may not be that way for you, but there was so much dukkha in the body. And I said, you told me, the next time I went, I said, you told me I would never experience this again. You know, and he said, but this is different dukkha. Everything's <laughs> impermanent, you know. So it, it's not the end. It's just the courage that we have to face one dukkha-filled moment after another it gives us courage to open to the, the next ones that come up. So it's this moment-to-moment -moment commitment that we have in our life, a, a steadfast firmness of purpose that we, we need to have in our lives. Uh, even if we make a simple goal of uh, to be more patient in our lives and noticing that day in and day out in all situations as much as we can. I've always loved this quote by Goethe about commitment. Until one is committed, there is hesitancy, the chance to draw back, always ineffectualness. Concerning all acts of initiative, there is one elementary truth, the ignorance of which kills countless ideas and splendid plans. That the moment one definitely commits oneself, providence moves too. All sorts of things occur to help one that would never otherwise have occurred. A whole stream of events issue from the decision, raising in one's favor all manner of unforeseen incidents and meetings and material assistance, which no one could have dreamed would come his or her way. Whatever you can do or dream you can, begin it. Boldness has genius, power, and magic in it. Begin it now. I think Steve and I have had to tell ourselves that over and over again through this multi-year project of doing the hermitage and the sanctuary at home. But uh, we've never had a thought of giving it up. We've never had a thought of, um, of saying, you know, Maybe this is too much for us even. It's always just like, keep going, the next step. Stay with your commitment. And, and so that's what we do. And um, yeah, so it's come to the point where we can make another big step, as Steve explained this afternoon, of actually building that, what we call the Buddha barn. Um, it took a lot of patience, a lot of resolve, a lot of faith in the Dharma. And um, I haven't lost one bit of that. So I didn't get through those periods of time through striving in, in, my, in my practice. I didn't get through those periods of time by grimacing and pushing my way through, which is the wrong way to practice. It's not right resolve. It's more unskillful or wrong resolve. Because I know that by grimacing and pushing my way through, that adds to the suffering, of course. And, and we want to lessen it. We want to be clear. We want to have skillful resolve so we can see clearly. 
But I don't want, as I said before, to, to kind of be so loose that I'm, I'm really not um, keeping that continuity which gains momentum and more strength and more clarity and it deepens the wisdom. So we really have to find what's skillful and, and ev- actually every retreat is different. One of the things I uh, knew to do was that there was sometimes, I, I, I've always had faith in the Dhamma. I think I, I just came into this life that way. I've had faith in the Dharma and I've, I've had faith in, in the Buddha that the Buddha's uh, purification of his heart and his mind was really a true thing that happened in the world and his handing down of the teachings that we still receive. But it was always uh, more difficult to find trust in myself that maybe I, I knew sometimes that I didn't have trust in myself, that I didn't think I could do the practice. Um, and so during those times, I took trust in, in the people I could trust, in the people who were guiding me that I knew had, by just their way in life, I knew that they had gone the path before me uh, much more than I ever had. So I could take their advice. I could um, learn from them. And these were the teachers that came into my life. So I, I really trusted that. And I had to kind of lean on their trust in me more than my trust in myself. So, you know, that's one thing that I really appreciate about all of our guides, that when, when we've been given some kind of hard, high hurdles to go over and we've been directed to do that, the very fact that our teachers could say, do this was like, then I would think, oh, are you kidding? You know, do that. And sometimes Upandita would ask me to make a resolve for a certain experience. And one of the first times he would ask me, I would think, make that resolve. We call it an aditana. Make that aditana. I just, that's beyond, 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 you know. But then I would. I would say, okay, I'd go and I'd sit down and it probably because I let go of whatever was in me, I'd say, okay, I trust the teacher. I sit down, I'd make that aditana and boom, the mind would just be there. It would be so incredible just trusting someone that you trust. And when I look back, I see that there are many times that my teachers trusted me more than I could trust myself. And there's a lot that teachers have to hold in, in seeing students and seeing that you can do it, even when you don't think you can do it yourself. A lot of what we're holding as teachers up here, even though you know we're just sitting with you and it seems like maybe we float in on a cloud, <laughs> but there's a lot going on behind the scenes and, scenes and also in our own hearts. And, holding the possibility for liberation for each one of you. Doing what our teachers did for us, you know, just by their very beingness, by how they are in the world, how they offered the Dharma, seeing that it can be done, and this is the way it's done, following this path, uh, giving this training. And um, 
so trusting our guides um, and and also being willing to to take advice being willing to to actually re respect the advice that comes from the Dharma and uh, what our teachers say to us very directly is that when you when you're here with us you must be willing to take admonishment now that's not you know very easy for us to speak in that way but um, sometimes we have to to our teachers have said to us just very directly not not by beating around the bush or trying to make a hard word soft you know not not what they call soft peddling the Dharma that's why we use the word defilements but by really saying it directly this is the wrong way just straight out like that this is the right way uh, to do the practice and so uh, you have to be willing to really receive and, and see how does it work in your own hearts, of course, to find out. But um, sometimes this trying my own way, I, I waste time, get lost. When we can find that faith in ourselves and trust that goodness and, and wisdom and compassion on our own hearts, that's much, much stronger, though when we find our own way. And sometimes, as I've said, we kind of have to get lost before we find ourselves, before we find that way in ourselves. And uh, sometimes um, I use the analogy of, uh, sometimes I get to a, a stoplight or a stop sign and I see that I, I can't turn left because I, I just can't find my way in the traffic to turn left. So I have to kind of turn right first and then find a way to turn around way down the road before I turn back again. And sometimes we do have to kind of go backwards before we go forwards in our life in, in that respect. And we have to find what, what works for us by getting lost sometimes or by going in the opposite direction. So trusting oneself, that is the place where we find uh, the most strength. What can we trust in ourselves? This is from Charles Dubois. The important thing is this, to be able at any moment to sacrifice what we are for what we could become. There are times when we we say, well, I've only done this. I know I can do this. But maybe we can say to ourselves, but I can take a little step forward or a little step to maybe kind of um, go over that higher bar that we have for ourselves. Because we want to deepen in our practice. We want to purify our hearts more and more. I mean, we get weary of seeing all the greed, hatred, and delusion in our own hearts. So what contaminates that feeling of clear resolve? And it's important to know these places in ourselves so that we can be more decisive about going, um, about having more resolve, about trusting ourselves more. And part of trusting ourselves more is knowing the places in our hearts that uh, are obstructions in our hearts. When we have doubt in oneself, how to overcome that doubt in oneself. 
people, I think Steve spoke about it a little bit last night or the other night, and, and I know for myself that when I'm having doubt, I'm trying to figure it out too much. I'm trying to, you know, maybe find that book I have hidden in my suitcase and read up on it a little more, when really uh, that is kind of tying my, my head in knots. But to find a way that I can bring to my practice where I can really not doubt my practice for a few moments. And it's very simple. Come to your breath. Come to that next step you're taking. And know that breath as it is in that moment. Just very, be very simple and clear about what you have to do. Open your ear door and just open it to hearing, hearing. You don't, you don't have to have any doubt about that. Or just opening to stepping, moving your body in space. There, you don't have to have any doubt about that. So I realized for myself that when I was uh, thinking too much about the practice, I had more and more and more doubt. Sometimes it clarifies a doubt. But if that's, if, if you see that it puts you more into tangles or you're more like a dog chasing its tail, then you can know, okay, stop this and do something really simple. That's way too complex. There's indecision and wavering. That's one of the uh, ways that we contaminate this feeling of clear resolve. Just do something. You know, we kind of sometimes, uh, we don't know what to do, so we're just stymied and, and we're just kind of stagnating and we're kind of lost in not moving at all. So just do something. So I, I would tell myself, just do walking now. It's, it's always helpful to, to move that doubt along by moving the body. Uh, decide on doing something that will help you to kind of stabilize your practice by giving, more, uh, giving you more commitment to your practice. Do something that's easy for you. Maybe it's getting a cup of tea and just sitting there mindfully, mindfully drinking your tea, lifting, lifting, opening the mouth, drinking, drinking, tasting, tasting. So making those mid-course corrections all along the way, we have to do that all the time. Do you know that a rocket to the moon is, uh, the direction is towards the moon, but it's said that 99% of the time it makes, it's making mid-course directions. You know, it, from here to go to there, it could, it could just go straight, but it's always, it's always making mid-course directions, but it finally makes it to its destination. And that's what we have to do uh, in our practice here. So be prepared for all of these, this wavering mind, this inertia, this feeling stymied or stagnant in your practice, uh, the indecision, the wavering, and times when there's lack of commitment. Know what you have to do for yourself to, to keep going on the path. Joseph tells a story, Joseph Goldstein tells a story of Deepama, one of our teachers. And um, she had a very, I'll tell more about her later, but she had a very difficult time in, in the development of 
her clear-mindedness and open-heartedness. And uh, at the end of that, you know, she, she was like a stellar, just stellar yogi and teacher. And um, she said to Joseph, you, you should sit for three days. And Joseph thought, what, sit for a weekend? He didn't really take her seriously. He thought, you know, weekend retreat, do that. And so he clarified with her, and he said, Deepam, well, what do you mean by three days? And she said, I want you to make a resolve to sit the beginning of the first day and sit for three days and get up on the third day after 72 hours. And Joseph just laughed. You know, but she did it here, a housewife in, um, you know, beautiful housewife with a great heart in, um, in India. She did that. And then he said, she said to him when he laughed, don't be lazy. You just, you know, thought it could be possible. She knew it could be possible. Actually, you know, when I heard that story from Manindra, I thought, three days, you know? She sat for three days. And when I, I went to India once and I talked, Deepa Maas passed away, but I had talked to her daughter, Deepa. You know, the mother's name was Deepa Ma, the mother of Deepa. So I asked Deepa, what was the most astounding thing that you saw in your mother? And she said, well, one of the most astounding things is when I was a child, and we were actually in Burma and um, together, and uh, my mother was, um, she was given the guidance by Manindraji, our teacher, to sit for three days. So he asked us and, and uh, the relatives that were with him said, don't bother your mother. She's going to be sitting for three days. And uh, Deepa thought, well, maybe she's going to do a retreat, you know, on the weekend for three days or on the three days. Or I don't know what days of the week it was. And so she said, I actually saw my mother sit down in that in a certain corner of a bedroom, and she did not get up to have anything to eat, to go to the bathroom, to take any drink, to walk. She just sat there still for three days. So I knew, you know, from a child's mind, that she was old enough, maybe eight or nine, and um, she wouldn't lie or shade the truth in any way. So don't be lazy. <laughs> <laughs> We're not asking you to sit for three days. <laughs> when I met Manindra, he told me about Deepama when I first met him, because he wanted to inspire me about, you know, here I am, a, a working mother, and uh, I know this other mother in, in India, and she can do it, and you can do it too. And he was just straightforward, just like that. And he, he didn't. He didn't uh, mistrust me or have doubt in me at all. So he said that she wanted to see the end of suffering. She wanted to be free in her mind. She had lost her husband, her children, her health. And when she went to Burma to practice under Manindraji's guidance, she was actually so weak that she had to crawl to the meditation hall. She, she was so committed in her practice that even when she couldn't walk, she crawled to do her practice in, in the hall. 
and her resolve and determination was so strong and so steadfast. She wasn't headstrong in that kind of striving way, but she was heartstrong. She was really connected to the purity of her intention. She made it through all the inner hardships of the practice that we, we all go through in different intensities, and she found her mind more and more deeply free. And so it, it said that she was one of the, uh, the few in, in the realm of people that we met, we have met in our lives that have really freed her mind from all kinds of ill will and aversion. Um, and it, you know, just that little bit of attachment to s- beautiful, subtle, blissful states of mind. Uh, her life was really an inspiration to my own life. So I had taken this retreat with Manindraji, and at the end of the retreat, after getting a little taste of the Dharma, I was so inspired, and I had this um, samvega, this spiritual urgency that I, I hadn't known before to that degree. So he advised me to take a longer retreat. So his uh, it came from him to go practice with Seda Upandita. And it was the first long retreat I had ever uh, gone to take in. But I couldn't imagine leaving the, the children for that long. And uh, I had three, I had four children at that time. And the youngest one was only four years old, and, and there were older ones too. And I had a very uh, loving husband, the father of of uh, three children, and um, actually I was very attached to my children, very identified as a mother, and I couldn't leave them. But what was stronger was this um, urgency to be free, freer and freer. I'm not completely free, but I understood that there could be a greater freedom. And um, so it took a lot of determination for me to go to that course. And I went to the next course that he was teaching, which was in Australia. And uh, it was going to be about a year from that time. And so I was so determined. And we had bought a beautiful house in Maui. And it was kind of like a dream house that we could afford from, from our standards. but. Um, Luckily, my husband at that time said that we talked about it, and we said, we can sell the house. So I mean, that's how determined I was. We can sell the house, and we sold the house, and we got the equity out of that, and we bought a house that was a lot less expensive and that he could fix up. And so it it took um, a long time, you know, to to get the equity from that and, and then to save the money and to um, prepare to leave, to pre- prepare the children that I would be gone, to write all the cards that would be sent to them, you know, be mailed so that they knew I was with them in my heart. And um, so I went to that retreat and it was the retreat from hell. I attended so many retreats before that, shorter retreats, but this was such a, a difficult retreat. I was assigned to a dormitory with a bunch of, you know, Amazon Australian women. 
uh, I love my Australian women friends, and, and I love Australia. It's a great place for me. And they kept all the windows open, and I was freeze-ass cold. It was so cold that I could not, I couldn't sleep, you know, in the dormitory. There, there were about 20 of us. And, and so my, my yogi girlfriends, I didn't really know anybody at all. They were handing me their, their wool blankets, and I'm allergic to wool and all that <laughs> stuff. So, but I, I was really, I, I really didn't sleep very much anyway. I was so, um, like Steve was on fire with the Dharma, I was on fire with the Dharma. My hair was burning, they say. And I really just wanted to experience a greater sense of freedom. Not that I was that free then, even. And so um, it, was, it was like uh, the, the pain in the body was like there were four horses, and each horse was tied to one of my limbs. And the horses were pulling in, in the opposite directions, and it felt like my limbs were going to fall off. Literally, I, I just really, I couldn't take it. It was, the dukkha was so, in the body was so, so terrible. And um, then I remember, uh, you know, getting such good advice from, from the teachers and, and getting through that, the pull up your socks and all of that. And, and then I was so cold, so I decided, oh, the, the hall is warmer. So, and I couldn't sleep anyway. So I went to the hall and I just sat in the hall. And I, and I sat next to where the heater was with my, with my blanket on. And I just decided uh, the Buddha did it, not that I'm anywhere close to the Buddha, but I'm going to sit up till I get through this. So I, I just sat up. You know, I, I didn't sleep. I, sometimes I fell over because I was tired, and I would get back up again, and I would just sit up. And it was a time I, I stayed up a lot. And uh, Sado, as strict as he is, he was in a cottage nearby, and I guess, I don't know, maybe he saw I was sitting there, as somebody said, you know, this woman sitting a long time. And um, it wasn't look like I even looked like I was alert, you know. I, I got sleepy, and sometimes I was alert, and sometimes I wasn't, but I was determined. And he would come in the hall several times in the night and in the early morning, and he would walk in and he would, I, I would open my, I would hear something, I'd open my eyes and I'd see him. And he would look at me and to see if I was all right, I think, you know. I, I have so much affection for him. And um, he's just, the, his loving kindness and his compassion is just beyond. And uh, so I, I got through that. My, my commitment was absolutely resolute. And that retreat changed the stream of my life. And uh, I had to have, it was there. I had to go with it, and I, I did it. I just stayed with it. And um, so resolution, resolve, you'll find when you have it and you can have the courage and energy to go with it and you just stay with it. But sometimes you find that it needs a little different balance, um, but you still keep your resolve, your resolution there. 
you're, you, you're not going to do it the way you know the Buddha did it or don't compare yourselves to what anybody else is but find your own way to stay resolved in your practice to know what your aspiration is and to see that light beaming in front of you and ahead of you all the time keep that in your heart so I have had a choice to read these two poems. Remember the journey from Mary Oliver? Okay, I'm going to read that another time because that's, um, I want to read the high bar. This is from Mahabua, a great practitioner, yogi, teacher from Thailand. And it was written in his book, An Heir to the Dhamma. From the very start of my practice, I was really in earnest because that's the sort of person I am. I wouldn't just play around. Whenever I would take my stance, that's how it would have to be. When I set out to practice, I had only one book, the Patimoka, in my shoulder bag. Now I was going for the full path and the full results. I was going to give it my all, give it my life. I wasn't going to hope for anything else. I was going to hope for nothing but complete release from suffering. I was sure that I would attain release from suffering in this lifetime. All I asked was that there be someone who could show me the paths, fruitions, and Nibbana were for real. I would give my life to that person and to the Dhamma through the practice without keeping anything back. If I was to die, I die with the practice. I wouldn't die with retreat, meaning, you know, kind of not doing it. My heart was set like a stone post. So let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.